listeners, my name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. There will be some changes in our English Unity in Christ program. A new program titled, If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me, will be starting as Sermon on the Mount has now come to an end. Through this new program, we will take the time to study what a true discipleship means through the words of Jesus. Please stay tuned for this new program. There is a part of Israel culture that is hard for some people to understand. It is the culture of the kinsman redeemer. I remember how hard it was for me to understand the concept of the kinsman redeemer when I had to study about Israel's culture. In the older days in Israel, when someone lost all their wealth, they were often sold to be a slave to another home to pay off their debts and to have food to eat. According to the laws in Israel, if you work as a slave for six years, on the seventh year your debts disappear and you are no longer a slave. However, if you have a kinsman redeemer, then there was no need for you to be sold into slavery. And if you were already a slave, then the kinsman redeemer was able to free you from slavery. There is a famous kinsman redeemer in the Bible. His name was Boaz, and he was the kinsman redeemer for Naomi. There was a very bad famine when the judges were governing the land that led the Elimelech family to move to the land of Moab. Naomi was Elimelech's wife. Naomi lost her husband and her two sons while trying her best to survive in Moab. The only two people left by her side were her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi decided to go back to her hometown after hearing that God was looking after his people. Orpah decided to go back to her hometown, Moab, and Ruth decided to follow Naomi to her hometown. After returning home, both Naomi and Ruth worked very hard to survive. During the harvest season, Ruth went out to the fields to gather the wheat that fell to the ground. Both Ruth and Naomi lived off that to survive. That was when Boaz, Ruth's kinsman redeemer, appeared to her and was able to help both Ruth and Naomi survive. Boaz even took Ruth as his wife and helped to carry on the family line. That was how Naomi's household recovered their freedom and their rights. This was a grace that kinsman redeemer Boaz had shown to the house of Elimelech. Boaz had helped them recover all their rights and freedom, bought back the land they had sold, and helped to restore the family line. This was what Boaz did as a kinsman redeemer. We will continue this talk after the first song. I'm sorry. 
As I said before, something like this is very hard to understand in our culture today. However, for the Israelites, this was something that God had commanded them to do. The Hebrew word for kinsman redeemer is goel, and this system is called the goel system. Leviticus chapter 25 verses 24 and 25 says, Thus for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Leviticus chapter 25 verses 47 to the first part of verse 49 says, Now if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you become sufficient, and a countryman of yours become so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you, or to the descendants of strangers' family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 and 6 says, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. God commanded his people to follow the Goel system and made kinsman redeemer one of his laws. This Goel system showed the characteristics of God and the love that he had for his people. It also shows God's commandment of how they should love one another. What is more interesting are the qualifications that a kinsman redeemer or Goel must have. In order to be a kinsman redeemer, three conditions had to be met. First, as you can guess from the name, an individual had to be a relative to the person. Second, an individual had to have wealth and power. Being a relative wasn't enough to qualify for a kinsman redeemer. What Goel did was to pay the price and give freedom to his relative who was sold as a slave or buy back a relative's land, or possessions that were sold, and to revenge for his unjustly death or unfairly treated relative. This was not an easy thing to do, and that is why, third, a willing heart was necessary to become a Goel. This was their responsibility, but it was not their duty or obligation. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 25, that if someone is not happy to take on this responsibility, there was a law that says his sandals will be pulled from his foot, spit on his face, and he will be known as the one that refused to provide his brother with children. This is why a goel must happily take on this responsibility. Boaz had all the qualifications as a kinsman redeemer. He was a relative of Naomi's household, and he had the ability to buy back all that Naomi had lost. Most importantly, he had the willing heart to do this. It is through this grace that King David was born, and after, 
Messiah Jesus Christ was born. And Jesus Christ becomes all of our kinsman redeemer. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer to all of God's people.
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Think Bigger, Part 2, based on Haggai, Chapter 2, Verses 1 through 23. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. We don't have what it takes. And yet God says, I want you to go do this and catch this. I'm not calling you to do it because you can do it. I'm calling you to do it because you, your God can, right? It's exactly what God calls us to do spiritually. He's not calling us to be holy because we can be holy without Him or to be faithful because we can be faithful without Him. To love others who are hard because we can do it without Him. He's calling us to do things that we cannot do in and of ourselves apart from Him. We need a strong, vigorous Spiritual life that is in Christ, that is constantly seeking resources that only He can provide to do work that only He can do. And God says, when I tell you to build a temple, be faithful and watch me work. Watch me do more than your flimsy muscles can explain. So that God gets the glory, catch this, for His glory being amongst His people. (laughs) Do you see that? He even gets the glory for the glory being amongst His people. Like they don't even get glory for that. All to God. And that's God's plan for Christians as well. You'll remember in Ephesians 6.10 that Paul tells Christians, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Flex your faithfulness and watch God move. Be strong. That's what he wants us to do. Well, how, how are you strong? Well, be strong and share the gospel with that neighbor that you are scared of not being able to do it right. You're scared of losing that relationship. And you find yourself cowering before them. Not because they're mean or nasty. Uh, In fact, they're probably pretty kind. But because you are fearful. God says, be strong, don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm your God. Be strong and and seek out someone to disciple. Even when you feel deficient. Right? You, You feel like maybe you don't have the resources. Or maybe you're reminded of some kind of past experience where you felt like you wasted your time because you were either abandoned or you didn't quite see the fruit that you had hoped. Be strong. Be strong in your marriage when you feel like maybe the past five or even ten years have been hard. And look to God in prayer and in His Word and submit yourself to God trusting that He can do more than you based on your own strength. Be strong in your singleness. Be strong knowing that you're not less human because you are single. You're not less human because you're single. You're not a deficient human being because you are not married off. You've been made fully in the image of God. You you need to be strong knowing that God has appointed this specific time in your life for you to be more devoted to Him, having more opportunities to serve Him, to pray, to to go and, and seek after Him. Be strong. Even though the job may seem small and insignificant, like maybe nursery or cleaning nursery toys or keeping or doing sound, whatever it might be that you might think is a small thing in your eyes, realize that it's serving God's people and God Himself with His strength. Be strong in giving, even though it feels insignificant, knowing that maybe it feels small, you don't have much to give. Be faithful in giving a little, knowing that God has in the past taken just a few fish and fed thousands. Be faithful. Trust God and watch Him work. See, being strong isn't just about muscles. It's not, it's not just about muscle. It's about demeanor and it's about attitude. 
So when we hear this, we should, we should know that what God is speaking about is not just being strong and like getting to work, but the way that we work. And we ought to have hearts that are happy and hopeful before God. That's strength, an inner strength of trusting God. Things don't look the way I want. And yet, I'm going to trust God and be happy and work happily and faithfully. And I'm going to trust that God's going to bring about unexpected fruit for the glory of His name. It's about attitude. See, that's why when we look at the Bible... And we see a call to be strong. We shouldn't be thinking, okay, that's for the men folk, right? Like, be strong is for men because that's what men do. Men work out, men are strong. Women don't, unless they're like strangely like athletic, like Ronda Rousey or something. Like, we don't, we don't see women as being like strong and, and powerful and that kind of thing. And yet, spiritually, when we see God tell his people to be strong, he speaks to a nation of people and says, men and women, I want you to be strong. Spiritually strong. Women, I want you to take confidence in God's Word. I want you to hold to it. I want you to be fearless before the obstacles that face you, just like I want your husbands to. That's exactly what God calls God's people to do, to be a a people whose strength is not in themselves. That will cause you to have identity crisis, but where you find your strength in Him and Him alone. See, great things are going to happen, not because I'm great or because we're great, but because of the Lord of hosts and that He is. Expect anticipated fruit from faithfulness to spring up to the glory of God because God's presence is present in our present. You'll have to go back and re-listen to that. But there's another reason to be strong. And that's be strong because your future is incredibly bright in verses 6 to 9. Be strong because your future is incredibly bright. Did you see this? This is an amazing kind of picture. Notice what he says. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What a promise. You'll notice that he says the better days are yet to come. In fact, uh, verse 6, notice it begins with this little word for. For. That word for tells us the reason Israel can trust God in the present is because God promises their future is incredibly bright. He throws their attention forward to to a future day when he's going to shake not just the earth, but the heavens themselves. Earthquakes, you'll take note, they happen all the time. But heavenquakes are special. In fact, I've never seen one. Never seen a heavenquake. But if you start seeing the sky shake, or you think that you've seen one, then something's really wrong. Something's really wrong, or, or something's really right. See, everything trembling before God communicates the coming of God in a way that not only the people of God shake, but the totality of creation from heaven to earth, from the beast of the field, everything shakes before this unique presence of God that has come. He's been present before, but never like this. And all nations shake in verse 7, bringing in their treasures to build a house for God that exceeds even Solomon's temple in glory. I mean, just think about it. Israel's so paralyzed by the glorious past, they cannot bear to look 
at the present, much less the future. And they've told themselves, all is lost. What's the point? And God says, catch this, the best is yet to come. Your thoughts of you are not just too little. Your thoughts of me are too little. Your thoughts of the future are too small. Greater glory than you have ever seen or that has ever been seen awaits. Now, even though verse 6 says it's in just a little while that this will happen, and you might be thinking maybe this happened shortly thereafter, maybe this was Herod's temple that fulfilled this because Herod later built a glorious temple that Jesus walked in that was magnificent. It even expanded the, the borders of the previous one. I, I believe this actually doesn't point to Herod's temple, but to Christ and what is coming in the new heavens and the new earth. Though some say that this might happen during the millennial reign, and there's disagreements about that. I think right now it's speaking of Jesus, and it also points forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Now, you'll remember that Jesus stood in Herod's temple in John 2, like we said last week, and he said, in three days I'm going to tear this down and I'm going to build it up again. And they thought he was crazy, but he said, actually, this is speaking of me and my body, where I'm going to die, be in the grave for three days, and to be raised again from the dead, right? So that's what's, that's what's coming. It's me. I'm the, the fulfillment of what this temple pointed towards. This temple longed to see my day, and I'm here. And God's people, the, the Pharisees, didn't know what they had before them. The actual place where they could meet with God in a way that they, could, they had never met with Him before. See, but here, Jesus is, what we find is Jesus' death and resurrection actually saw a lot of these experiences. So Jesus' death and resurrection caused an earthquake, you'll remember, and, and the temple veil itself was rent, removing that thing that separated God's presence from God's people. Peace was proclaimed, and the nations began to be drawn to God. So there was sort of a fulfillment of this in, in a small way, even when Jesus came. But, but this is just a, a small foreshadowing that Jesus points us towards a greater coming when Jesus returns, right, in the New Testament. And this is nothing compared to the greater coming day that 2 Peter 3.10 speaks of when that countless throng will surround the throne of God like we see in Revelation 7. And the light of the glory of God and the Lamb lights the city. And where there is no temple because Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple forevermore. Revelation 21.22. You see that? Jesus. We've got Jesus. We don't need the temple anymore. We've got something better. And now in the end times, we have God and His Son forever lighting up the whole city of God. We don't need sun and moon anymore. We've got God who lights the city. Now, if you're wondering about how bright can the future be, that's a bright future, right? I mean, you don't get more light than the light of God Himself who says, guess what? The sun, it is, is no longer needed. You know, it's superfluous to have a sun when you have the glory of God before you. That is inferior light. It is the light of the God of lights who created that light. And now that you got me, you don't need it anymore. And what a picture for the people of God that we see throughout the Scriptures of just how bright the future is for us. Maybe we can't describe it fully and the glory that awaits us, but we can't say anything else about how bright it's going to be. The whole earth will be filled with the unprecedented glory of God. And Christian brothers and sisters, I don't know what your past is, but that's our future. That's your future. So don't let nostalgic paralysis cause you to forget God's presence in our future. No matter how dark the past, don't let it dim the reality of that incredibly bright 
future that awaits you. See, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus has defined our present and future, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, this life in the present is about being united with Jesus. This life right now, living is Christ. And, and dying is what? It's gain. So living is Jesus and dying means more Jesus. That's what we have to look forward to. That's the hope that stands before us. And so much of our nostalgia, I know that it can come to fantasy that causes us to hate the present. And I hate it so much that we struggle to be faithful in the little things that lie before us. But when we hear God's call to be strong because God is present and our future is incredibly bright, we're empowered to be faithful with the little things, even amidst trials like Jonathan Edwards. So much of this is being faithful in the little things. That's so much of what Christianity is, being faithful day in and day out with the small things. I'm reminded of, I believe, the way that Jonathan Edwards looked at life in this. See, I believe Jonathan Edwards, uh, he's one of my favorite theologians from the past, and I, I believe that he had a good perspective on both his present in Christ and, and also the future that awaited him, and I believe that that actually determined the way that he dealt with present trials and struggles and lived a life that was faithful. He was strong because he understood these things. And one experience came to mind when I was thinking about this text. Now, many saw Jonathan Edwards, if you don't know him, as one of the great philosophical, theological minds that our, our country has ever produced, and especially in the age that he grew up in, in the 1700s in Northampton. Now, if you don't know much about him and his significance in history, he was one of the leaders of the Great Awakening. It actually kind of gave birth out of his church in Northampton, a congregational church where he preached the word, and they all of a sudden saw a revival that broke out in America that was incredible. And in fact, uh, we find the zenith of this, um, of this movement in 1740 to 1742 where tens of thousands of people came to faith in Christ and showed incredible fruit and spiritual fruit uh, such that they even had to start figuring out, like, how do we determine what's real and what's not? Because there's so many powerful evidences of the Spirit here. Now imagine this. A man that led one of the greatest revivals that our country, maybe that our world has ever experienced, just 10 years later, on June 22, 1750, was fired by 90% vote of his membership after 24 years of ministry, largely due to rumors later proved by others to be false. His people gossiped. They slandered and disdained him until he left. And just a decade after leading a massive movement of the spirits, that, that's leading a massive movement of the spirit of God that's still being written about, that man was fired. Just think about it. I mean, talk about going from glory to brokenness. Can you imagine? Like leading a people to see unprecedented movements of God to people saying, over gossip, you're gone. We talk about going from glory to brokenness. Well, catch this. I believe that it might be in that moment that we saw what Jonathan Edwards was really made of and we saw his truest strength. We might have seen his strength, I believe, more in his brokenness than we saw in him leading the great revival. See, Jonathan Edwards' obedience to God's command to be strong was at its best in his suffering and in this experience where he was fired uh, Ian Murray's biography records an observer who watched Jonathan Edwards in this moment of his life, right? 
They, they saw him in the, the revival, but they also saw him here. And this is what they said about Edwards. That, that faithful witness received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. I wish I could just go a day. The whole week. But he appeared like a man of God whose happiness, hear this, words that should stick with you, whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future, but a present good, overbalancing all the imaginable ills of life, even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismission. Did, did you hear that? His happiness out of the reach of his enemies. You see that? Why? Because he was strong. Why was he strong? Because he knew that God was present with him. And he knew that his future was incredibly bright. And he knew that his treasure was beyond the reach of anyone who would rob him. And that's exactly what caused this man to be faithful in the difficult little things, just like the great things. See, Edward's faith in God's presence and his future enabled him to fight off nostalgic paralysis and to be faithful to God in the small things amidst trial. Friend, are you ready to live a life that is full in this way to the glory of God? Just think about it this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Just take a moment and just think to yourself. Let's bow our heads and, and spend some time with God just for a moment. I want you just to, to ask yourself, ask God some questions this morning just about your own heart. Are there ways that you have given up on God in your marriage or in your church or in your friendships or or other ways? Are there ways that you've just given up that you find yourself discouraged and immobilized in the present from living for the glory of God? Just take some God, time and, and ask yourself those questions and, and ask that God would rescue from those things, that he would give you hope, confidence in his presence, a bright future for us. Father, we come before you today as we've heard from your word and we confess that uh, we're not ever altogether going to forget the memories of the past that plague us, the good ones or the bad. But Lord, we do ask that by your spirit that you would indeed rescue us. Rescue us from uh, living in the past in such a way that it prevents us from being able to be used by you in the present for the glory of your name. Lord, you, you desire and you will do great things through your people. You promise us that. You don't tell us to be strong so that we'll fail. You tell us to be strong because you are strong and you have great plans for us. And God, for those who are here are not Christians and uh, maybe who have prayed uh, today asking to receive Christ, God, I pray that you would uh, give them encouragement to uh, seek other Christians to help them become fully integrated in the people of God so that they can have others to help them be strong. And we pray that you do this for the glory of your name. Amen.
This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English speaking children. Our office number is 602 866 8999. And email address is heartandsoul.orgmail.com. Following is a program called If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. Hello, listeners. This is Brian Winston, your host of a brand new series titled If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. Most people usually live their lives following someone, whether that someone is seen or unseen. We may follow the life of a person who is living today or imitate the footsteps of a person from the past. When we are young, we want to be like our parents. During adolescence, we might follow a hero or someone great and well-known. Nowadays, there are many cases where teens follow popular celebrities and idol stars. When we become adults, we look to someone who was great in the particular field of our career, and we try to follow their footsteps. For example, a business person would try to be like a famous business person who succeeded in his or her area of business. A scholar would try to be like the respected scholar who excelled in his study. Following in the footsteps of a person who has walked the same path that we're on is beneficial. Once we decide to follow someone, we gather much information on that person, including his or her lifestyle, thinking style, values or goals, and we try to have the same thoughts or values in order to have the same lifestyle of that person. This is natural when we're trying to follow someone. In my teenage years, I listened to rock music and I tried to follow rock stars. I tried my best to have their same appearance, acts, and thoughts by wearing the same clothes, growing my hair long, and acting like them. This is what it means to follow someone. It was me trying to become that person. The Bible calls these people disciples. They want to be like their teacher, so they imitate or copy the teacher's thoughts, words, actions, and everything else. There are many disciples in the Bible. The prophet Elijah had disciples, and John the Baptist also had disciples. Pharisees, as well as the teachers of the law, had disciples. The disciples always did their best to follow their teachers. As Jesus began his public life, he called and appointed his disciples. The reason why he called and appointed his disciples was so that when Jesus finished his work on earth and returned to our Father God, he had other people like him who would continue the work of his kingdom here on earth. And in fulfilling such a purpose, his disciples continued and completed the Lord's work. That is how today we could learn the good news of Jesus Christ, accept him as our personal Savior, 
and receive eternal life. Christian means followers of Jesus. It means Jesus' disciples. Jesus calls us as Christians. He calls us as his disciples. It means that our eventual purpose in this life is to become like Jesus Christ. Just as Ephesians 4.13 says, Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We should be mature men and women to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This is one of the biggest reasons why God called us. But sadly, this generation has distorted meanings to questions such as what is a Christian or who are the disciples of Christ. It's because believing in Jesus is thought of as just a way to get into heaven. Many people think evangelizing is just saying things such as believe in Jesus and go to heaven or come to our church, it's really good. But this way of spreading the good news is quite different from the way the Bible tells us. Would Jesus really have gathered his disciples in this way? In our program, if anyone wishes to come after me, I would like to discuss with you about what it means to follow Jesus and what the price of following Jesus is. Also, I hope this program gives an opportunity for us to check if we really are walking that path. Today, let's read Matthew chapter 10 and see what Jesus told his disciples while sending them to the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 22 says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Jesus is giving them power before sending them to the people of Israel. How do his words sound to you? Are they pleasing to your ears? Do you feel energized and overwhelmed with joy? Perhaps it is the opposite. When Jesus sent away his disciples, what did he say will happen to them? Yes, he says men will hand the disciples over to the courts and scourge them in their synagogues and will even be brought before governors and kings for Jesus' sake and will be hated by all because of Jesus' name. What kind of warning is that? Is Jesus saying not to go because of all of these hardships that will happen? No. Even though all these things will happen to them, Jesus is telling them 
that the spirit of our father will be in them and that the one who has endured to the end will be saved. Do you think Jesus is telling his disciples the true cost of following him? Or do you think he's hiding the truth? Jesus is telling them the truth without hiding anything. If Jesus tells us those same words today, would you still follow Jesus? I'll end today by asking you this question. Do you realize that even today at this hour, his spoken words are happening somewhere in this world? Even though 2,000 years have passed, starting with the 12 disciples of Jesus, there are people who are hated and persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. Would you still follow Jesus Christ even if all of these hardships happen to you in the same way? I hope you will be able to come up with an answer over the next week because an answer to this question can be the first step you take for living as a disciple of Christ. This concludes today's lesson. I look forward to sharing the next lesson of our program with you. I thank you for listening, and God bless.
Mankind was the most important of God's creations. Even though mankind has the identity of being God's people, we are sold into slavery because of sin. We are only freed from sin when we are able to pay all our debts for our sin. But the debt for our sins was death. If mankind pay for their own debt to sin, then they were not able to live again. No one is able to live again after paying for their sins with death. There's only one that came into our world to fulfill all of God's commandments, who is able to pay our debts without death. Death could not demand him, because he had no sin. This is the reason why he was qualified to pay our debts for our sins. Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. He's the one that meets all the necessary qualifications. When God's Son Jesus Christ came into this world in the flesh, He became our relative through blood. He met the first qualification to become our kinsman redeemer. Jesus Christ was able to prove His righteousness by following all of God's commandments, and because of His righteousness, He is able to free us from our sins. He paid for all of our sins with His death. This is how Jesus showed the second qualification to be our kinsman redeemer. Moreover, Jesus was not forced to do this at all. He did all this at His will. John chapter 10 verses 17 and 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus Christ laid down His life at His own will. He freed us as slaves from sin and restored us as children of God. And God raised Him from the dead. This is so that we who have our rights restored can live eternally with Him in heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 says, Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. April 16th should be a day that we remember the resurrection of our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, who died for all our sins. God has prepared for this day even before all His creations, and it is for this reason that He began all His work. This is the most joyful day for God, and it is also a joyful day for God's people who had all their rights restored and were freed from the slavery of sin. I hope that we all remember the true meaning of this day as we look forward to eternity with Him. And I hope that we all grow in faith as we look forward to that day. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week, and God bless. Who taught the sun where to stand in the morning? And who told the ocean you can only come this far? And who showed the moon where to hide to?
To the 